Okay. Well, thank you, guys. Man, I feel like I want to preach good now. So, and thank you, Van, for a great job. And uh, thank you for being here this morning. Um, it is always a joy to stand before you. And it's my privilege this morning to be able to do that. And my trust is that we'll lift up the Lord in all of this. We'll learn something together and maybe take some steps to make some life changes. Praise God that will result in a life lived for the glory of God. So uh, just a couple of quick check-ins. Uh, Debbie's already mentioned some things. Mike has mentioned some things for the last few weeks. Here's a couple of books in front of you here this morning. Uh, the, for those of you online, okay, uh, we've got a class starting, a discussion group we could uh, call it next week called Talking with Your Kids About Jesus. Okay, and so probably the reason I am a pastor today, the reason uh, I am a believer today is because of the life of Christ, the beautiful, wonderful life of Jesus. And um, this book uh, does a nice job of laying in a, what I would call an apologetic foundation, so a basic foundation of important things related to Jesus. So you've got the identity of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the difference Jesus makes are the main sections uh, in this book, all right? And so what I would say to you, all of you here, those online who may be watching, what I would say to you, the greatest tragedy in life is to go an entire lifetime and not seriously consider the claims of Jesus. And you know there are people who can say, that's been my life. And so what I'm just uh, offering to you, we've got several already signed up for it. Um, it'll probably be offered again in days ahead. So if you can't make this round, maybe you'll make the next one. But you, all of us, need to take this journey. And especially to give ourselves good standing before we encounter a, a worldview that, and they will bring lots of different questions and issues um, to the person of Jesus, the life of Jesus, all these things, that those five sections I just talked to you about, and then this book will make you aware of those, and then uh, it'll give me an opportunity also to discuss some things with you pertaining there too. So it's a great opportunity to grow in your life with Jesus. The second book we've got to offer you this morning, it's Cost, and this is a, uh, this is a great book. Uh, if you've downloaded it or you think you want to read it this morning, we've got some available in the West Lobby, and uh, it's probably one of the best biblical worldview presentations in light of what science has said about things that I've ever read. I really appreciate Russ and his ministry, and one of the things that he'll say often is um, that we believe the Bible uh, word for word and cover to cover. That's kind of his classic cliche or phrase, and he does. And he brings all that, marries that together. He's great at science, does a great job there, but he's also great at biblical truth. And he shows you, in light of what modern science has said, and in light of his belief in the reliability of a global flood, he brings those two themes together, and he shows you beautifully how that you stand on good, solid ground if you live your life via a biblical worldview and you believe um, that the Bible is accurate and true when it records creation, the global flood, and all the things that related to that. So... Take an opportunity to look through that, read it if you can, and then come ready because I think he's going to bring it on this day. And our church is going to be set up a little differently. We're going to have tables and chairs. Um, we've gotten um, those a long time ago just for events like this. And so we can set it up and you guys can just be in here, a little informal atmosphere here. And he's going to be speaking like three times, Q&A, uh, wrap up at, by uh, mid-afternoon or so. And you're off and going uh, on with your day. So... Um, really, really great learning opportunities. So we just trust that all of us will take advantage of these, these opportunities to grow. Um, so it has been quite a week, hasn't it? I mean, really, really has. We started with a funeral for a 14-year-old. Our church hosted it. We did not actually perform the ceremony, or ceremony, the, the services for this. Um, but we hosted the meeting, and I can tell you that that um, the viewing and the funeral that was held here, the, the uh, director of the funeral home, Daniel Blevins, and then so many people in the family, they so appreciate Stonesville Community Church for hosting those kinds of events 
um, and those kinds of tough places that you have to go through. I mean, uh, you just, I've never seen eight or ten West Noble football players in jerseys, red, white, and blue, carry a casket before, but I saw it this week. And that happens. And, uh, and it's amazing because some of those guys, like when I came here, like this tall, literally this tall, and now they're like this tall. And, um, but they manned up and carried that casket like gentlemen and did a great job. The mom appreciated it, doubled over so many times throughout the course of those two days, but um, doubled over with grief. But I can tell you that you make a difference, you matter. The love that you've expressed to families like that, um, just making this available, this building available to people like that, what a difference in ministry it is. And it's not just the building, it's what happens inside the building, the connections that are made, the conversations that happen. So thank you for, um, for that. And so, and then, of course, uh, I'm trying to prepare for my sermon um, to wrap up the finishing touches on it last evening. And I, I, I understand that the girls' um, basketball team is com- competing for a sectional championship. And so it's like, wow, I've got to try to get, you know, tune into this. So I turn on the radio, and I had trouble concentrating because of those girls. I was so proud. And the cheerleaders, you know, for the team, just a whole group. Every, it's, a good, it's a good day in Charger Nation, isn't it? Red, white, and blue, uh, uh, showing up out there, giving it a good, hard effort. And I could not believe that in girls basketball, late in the game, that the girls were icing the free throws. Points on the board with the clock stopped. It's a beautiful, beautiful formula for success in, in the world of basketball. And they did that. It's incredible. Um, I, I even... Uh, just like different ones from our church. Those that, some of those girls, many of those girls have been in our church before. And uh, we're just so glad that you're representing. And, and it's just so good to hear them call your name. And ISO's free throws, just so proud of you. Joe Hustle gave the, uh, the caravan, you know, the tour back to Ligonier. And, uh, and, and you haven't been, you haven't lived until you have tuned into a Harlan Height news action, live news action broadcast on Facebook Live. You haven't lived until you have seen him in action. I saw him last night, and he was out. And Harlan's here this morning. So glad to see him here because right in the middle of the broadcast, the thing froze. I was like, did Harlan just wipe out in front of the police station or what? But he's here this morning, and uh, it's so wonderful to, to celebrate with you and your successes, whether it's um, wrestling or uh, running or basketballing, whatever it is, just God is so good, and he's blessed you, and I just hope that we can all find something to enjoy in such a cold, sobering time of the year. Um, so praise God for what he's doing in you and through you, and the opportunity that um, we all have here to learn and grow together. So I was thinking about um, the message for today, and we've been uh, working our way through the book of Daniel, and it's such a powerful book. It speaks to so many different, well, it's multi-generational because these guys were teenagers. And I'm so proud uh, of our teenagers. And I'm so proud of Daniel because he did what I think all of us would hope that we would aspire to do and to be, if ever given the similar circumstances that he were in and that he was in. And that if we were ever in those circumstances, that we could be as as, uh, commendable as Daniel was. And so what we're looking at here this morning is we've looked at Daniel chapter 1 and we've looked at his identity and in fact we're looking at uh, things that um, a a way to deal with a culture when the culture decides that you're no longer relevant uh, or the culture says you know what the biblical worldview is just kind of eh whatever and they push us to the margin push that idea to the margin and now we're going to live according to a different value system. Well, Daniel was committed to a biblical worldview. And so when we started the series, we talked about living your life. We talked about stamping your child, Danny, Danielle. Okay, that was his name. His parents stamped him with the God identity early in life. Draw your line, stand your ground, love your people. All of these things are ways to go about living in a culture um, where the secular worldview is dominant, you no longer have home field advantage, now you're, you know, operating in a, in a world where you're the minority position. And these are ways that we can think about living and living for God in those kinds of, in that kind of a context. Well, today, 
we want to look at something else to just take the, the series the next, the next step. And that is that stand your ground, love your people, all these things, but face your crises. You're going to face a crisis. We're all going to face a crisis at some point, and we have to face it, and we want to face it successfully. So as I think about uh, Daniel chapter 2, I see him so well. He, he just does an incredible job of leading in a crisis. And, um, and so I want to talk to you a little bit about that, but first we're going to have to, to read through the verses. There's like uh, verses 1 through 23. There's like 23 verses here. Uh, and so we want to look at that and look at these verses because it sets up something very powerful at the end of the message. And so not only do, do we want to look at um, leading in a crisis and facing a crisis, but we also want to look at what one commentator by the last name of Golden Gaze, he's written a, a pretty prominent commentary on the book of Daniel. He points out something very interesting to me, and I'll share it with you. It's, it's like a principle of cartooning. He calls it cartooning. Why does he call it that? Well, what happens is when we look at verses 1 through 23 of Daniel chapter 2, what you're going to see is you're going to see two character profiles emerge. You're going to see a king, Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian tyrant. You're going to see him in all, bent out of all sorts of shapes. And then on the other side of it, you're going to see very calm, collected, composed Daniel. Even though the king cast an execution net broad enough to take out Daniel and his three friends. Still, the guy is composed, he's centered, he's so based, he's so grounded, he's so focused, and I'm like, I want that kind of life. And maybe you do too, as you face your crisis, you think about leading through your crises. And so, we want to look at leading through a crisis, we want to look at a great example or contrast of, of a guy who led through a crisis, especially when compared to King Nebuchadnezzar. And then um, I'd like just to wrap it up today uh, with, with all of us seeing the value of doing life with God, especially in a hostile culture. The people living in the lion's den, the people of God in exile. And as we look at uh, Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 23, there are three scenes. And some of you like to organize your thoughts this way. And so um, basically there's three scenes that take place in verses 1 through 23. Um, we've got Nebuchadnezzar's bedroom. The king can't sleep. He has insomnia, ironically enough. And uh, so he has a dream that's really bothering him. So we have the Nebuchadnezzar's bedroom. We get the second scene in the passage, it moves from Nebuchadnezzar's bedroom to Nebuchadnezzar's courtroom. And this is his advisors trying to interpret not only what he dreamed, but what the dream means. And then the third scene that we've got is, we just simply call it Daniel's prayer room. So it moves from a bedroom to a courtroom to a prayer room. And this is how it kind of rolls out and lays before us. And we organize our thoughts that way. And so... Um, if we pull up on the screen, slide number two, we're going we're gonna to read these words. This is what was happening in the king's bedroom. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, plural, he had many, and his mind was troubled. And, and we're like, well, big deal. We have dreams all the time, right? Probably six, seven dreams a night, I think the average says. Um, but in his culture and in his religion, dreams were a means of revelation from God. That God was trying to tell him something, and he couldn't figure out what it was. And so this was, this was bothering him. And the text says his mind was troubled. Um, now, now, think of the irony of this. He is a king. He has wealth. Um, he has servants. Um, he has power. But he can't go to sleep. And it's amazing, I never ran the Google on it, but it's amazing how many people struggle with insomnia, especially in a, in a very um, crisis and anxious-filled age. Well, this was the king. So verse 2 says, So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, to tell him what he had dreamed. Because that was the 
the worldview of the Babylonians, that they, these were the people who had access to this kind of information, and this, was how they di- this is how they tapped into the supernatural. And so the, the king felt someone was, was perhaps practicing sorcery against him. And he seems to indicate this later in the passage. And so, so he has this dream. He calls in his, the, the Babylonian blue bloods and brain trust. And when they came in, they stood before the king. Um, we see that he said to them, I've had a dream. And notice it goes from dreams, first verse, plural, to dream in the singular in verse 3. I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want, you, I want to know what it means. I've had all these dreams, but I've had one in particular, and it has a, a very dark foreboding I feel in my life that somebody's trying to tell me something. Maybe one of you guys are, gonna, are planning my, a coup attempt in my kingdom. Something's happening, and I need to know what's up. So when we go back to, to verse, chapter, uh, verse 2, um, we, we look at these different categories of the occult and um, so they practiced this uh, these occultic arts in Babylon Um, the the magicians were the fortune-telling scholars scribes and sacred historians you had enchanters who practiced necromancy seances and speaking to the dead Um, you had sorcerers who were who would pronounce these incantations and they would cast spells and then you had, interestingly enough, the most curious group are the astrologers. And some texts have the Chaldeans, um, which is a way of saying these were the Babylonian blue bloods. They were, these were the people whose, whose ethnicity and their language and their history was tied deep, embedded into the Babylonian way of life. And they, and they lived their life under the mistaken belief that the stars could impact what happens here on earth. And here's what's interesting to me as I was studying this and did a little more um, Googling and searching. And and that is that it's interesting, the millennial generation, there's been an uptick, a surge. They're calling it a new era of astrology. This is something that people are pursuing more and more today. Um, Wicca has been on, on the uptick for several years. People trying to cope. They're hungry for insight into the future. And they want to have more control on outcomes, and so they will go to great lengths to try to secure some certainty as to what their future is going to look like. And so the practice of occultic divination, it involves astrology and zodiac charts and crystal balls and tarot cards and palm readings and, and psychics and numerology and horoscope. Daniel just calls them astrologers in the text. And then there's the magic arts or the paganism where there's ceremonies and charms and spells. And the magic art includes um, witchcraft and white magic, black magic, sorcery, Satanism, black mass, witch doctors, and so forth. In the text, Daniel just calls them sorcerers is the word. And then there's spiritism. Um, an attempt to communicate with the dead and receive information and help from them. So spiritism involves Ouija boards and seances and necromancy and ghosts. And, and in the text, Daniel just calls them enchanters. And we're seeing an uptick in this kind of old school Babylonian activity. We're seeing it today. And we're seeing it in the younger generation. And you mix all of that up. With this food thing we talked about in Daniel 1, is it any wonder that Daniel says, I can't do that? Because you're making food and the the occult, you're marrying those two things together, and I've got to draw a line. I don't want to open my life up to that kind of demonic spirit influence in my life. No, I want to be a temple for God to dwell in. And that's the point of, of much of Daniel chapter 1. And so here we see why he would draw that kind of a stance. You know, this is kind of a way back a story from my childhood. Um, I listened to a lot of preachers. Man, I went to church like three times a week, camp meetings in the summer. I was always at church, and uh, I fell asleep many nights on the pews. And uh, so that was part of my life. But there's one story that stands out to me I've never forgotten, and it's about a guy, a Bible guy, he was at, in a room, and I think there was a seance going on, and maybe a, a Ouija board in use. 
And when he saw the Ouija board moving, um, he got alarmed. He had his Bible with him. He threw his Bible on the Ouija board. And as soon as he did that, he was slammed up against the wall. And he couldn't figure out what had just happened because it was just invisible. And he pulled his shirt up and he looked, and he could see like a fist, the end of a fist on, his, on the center of his chest. This thing is real. I'm not saying there are other gods, but there's demonic realm. There's an evil realm at work in our world that's working against the purposes of God for your life. And that story I've never forgotten. And so when the uh, spiritual realm, the realm of, of light and the realm of wisdom and power, and Daniel's going to pray this at the end of this passage, just a powerful thing. But I'm going to tell you this morning, if, you're, if you've dabbled in this, if you're leaning this direction, if you open your life up to this, the occult is not how to face a crisis. Daniel is going to show you how to face a crisis. He's going to show you how to lead through the crises of, of a hostile culture, the people of God in exile, living in the lion's den. He's going to show you how to do that. But the occult is not how to do that. In fact, um, if you have found yourself um, leaning this direction or being under the influence of this, I would just say the permanent deliverance and restoration from this comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I love what Peter says. He says in 1 Peter 2.9, he says, that it's Christ who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful, wonderful light. And so I don't know to what degree you may have dabbled or uh, this, this sense of anxiety and wanting to know the future and what to do with that, not knowing what to do, trying to tap into these resources where I can control the world and my circumstances through my brain. And I'll be sh- sharing more about a, a girl's personal story who actually came through the occult, came out of it on the other side, encountered Jesus, and we're going to wrap it up today with that story. But I just want to pause right here to say that, that facing the crises of today and the crises of this cultural moment is not going to be, it's not, the occult is not the way to think about that. It's not the route to go on this. It is instead to kind of go with Daniel here to connect with your God. Okay, and he said, The king said, back to the text, the king said, verse 3, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. I want you guys to tell me, all you, these four different categories of people, I want you to tell me what's going on in my life. And so it's interesting, these guys kept records of people's dreams they would just okay this guy had a dream they would record it how did his life end another guy has a dream they would record it how did his life end okay if you're having this dream here's what's going to happen more than likely in your life now we know it's hocus pocus but to them it wasn't and so they had these massive libraries and, and, and there are archaeological studies who show us this these massive libraries with these incantations and these books and these manuals these dream manuals about what the, the kinds of things that were being communicated through the dreams that people had. It was a very clever system. And so this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, is coming to his, his brain trust, and he's saying, here's what's going on. I've had a dream. It's bothering me. I don't want just the dream interpreted. I want you guys to tell me what I dreamed. That way I'll know you're for real. And then not only do I want you to tell me what I dreamed, I want you to tell me what it means. Crises. Big crises. Verse 4 on the slide 5. Then the astrologers. So we're moving now from the king's bedroom. He can't sleep. Insomnia. Now we're going to move to the king's courtroom incompetence. Here's what we see. Verse 4. Then the astrologers answer the king. May the king live forever. Just court etiquette. Be cheerful. It's his ancient way of saying don't worry. Be happy. You, we, may you never die. May the chief never die. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. We'll go back to our dream manuals, and we'll find out precisely what's being conveyed to you through this awful dream, a dream so bad that you're afraid to go to sleep again. Verse 5, the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces. That's not very nice. Will used to say that to, when Megan was mean to him. That's not very nice. 
That's kind of what I thought about when I read that. Well, that's not very nice. This guy's having a bad day, right? He's having a really rough day. In fact, if you look at Hebrew, like the literal expression of the Hebrew, it says, um, you shall be made into limbs. And uh, Gleason Archer, Old Testament scholar, says on this that their arms and legs would be tied to four powerful trees. And they would just tie them like that. And then they would cut the ropes and the trees would just go back to their upright position. And you got the picture. I don't have to paint that picture for you. That's a rough way to go out. This is what the king said. It's going to happen to you guys. You're going to go into limbs, a limb state, if you guys don't come through. This guy's ticked. And not only that, your houses, verse 5, turn into piles of rubble. The Amplified Bible translates it, your houses shall be made a dunghill. Okay, so you're going to be dismembered by this weird Babylonian execution method. And not only that, we're going to make outhouses where your, your house used to be. We're going to bulldoze your house and put an outhouse on it, latrine. That's how we're going to do it. And here's the thing, this wasn't, a, this wasn't a, a shallow threat. He had the power and capability to do this. Verse 6, but if you tell me, now look at the extremes of this guy. If you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Verse 7, once more they replied, it's a ditto, verse 4, all over again. Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Verse 8, then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. Verse 9, if you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. He says, you have, you have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things. So he's under the impression, maybe these are counselors he's inherited from his father, and he doesn't trust them, nor their motives. And so he's suspecting something. God's, the gods are trying to sell him, tell him something through the dream. Verse 10, the astrologers answer the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however, great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. Verse 11, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. And they speak good theology here and don't even mean to. Simply stated, you can only get what you're after from a supernatural source. In other words, we've got nothing. We have nothing today. We can't meet this, this strange set of circumstances you're putting before us. But whoever can interpret this and, may, and explain this, they must be in touch with the gods. They must be in touch with the supernatural. So whoever can do this has a special access to the gods. Verse 12. This made the king so angry and furious. When you double the terms like that, it's to intensify the emotions. He is irate, and he ordered, look at this, the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued, verse 13, to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. And Daniel singled out because he's one of the leaders of that group. And the wise men essentially are being assembled for a formal execution. Verse 14 says, and this is, now we're set up for the contrast. So you've seen the king, Nebuchadnezzar, you see how he rolls, the extremes of emotions, the unpredictability of what he might say and do next. And now you got Daniel. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, He's the executioner. He had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon. Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Look at this. He's calm. He's composed. He's not panicked. He has confidence in God. He knows, he knows his destiny rests with God. He trusts the sovereignty of God. He's not in despair. He's ready. He's been prepared for this crisis before, long before it ever came. Verse 15, he asked the king's officer, 
Well, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. So they roll in on Daniel, and they announce to him the decree, and he simply and suitably, so beautifully, with, with appropriate counsel, he has wisdom and discretion, he just starts a conversation with the guy that's been tasked with the job of executing him. He has amazing composure for a 17 or 18-year-old at this time. He probably knew what was coming. But he engaged and he won the heart of Ashpenaz in, verse, in chapter 1. And now he engages. He wins the heart of Arioch in chapter 2. And verse 16, at this, Daniel went into the king and he asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. He went for it. If I say nothing, I'm going to die. If I say something and it's wrong, I'm still going to die. I'm going to take my shot. And he steps up to lead through a crisis. And so we go now from the king's bedroom to the king's courtroom. And now we go, verse 17, to Daniel's prayer room. And Daniel returned, verse 17, to his house. And he explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Have you ever been in a situation where you were going to be executed and it was time to go to prayer? You ever been in that kind of a spot? Can you imagine the intensity, the fervency? God, you have got to intervene. We've got moments to live and maybe, maybe just a few hours left and this is going to be curtains for not only me, but for all the wise men. And, and, he, and Daniel, he doesn't consult the dream manuals of Babylon. He just goes to prayer. And verse 19 says, During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven. And we see in verse 20, and he said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. And I just love it because Daniel has been stamped. Like I said in the earlier messages, he's been stamped by his mom and dad. And I, I would love to think his mom and dad could see in on this moment how proud they would be. Daniel, their son Daniel, under such intense pressure from the, from the Babylonian king and nation. Lives are threatened. And he's praising the name of God forever and ever. He is truly Danny L. He is living up to his name in this high-pressured, high-stakes, stress-filled, anxiety-filled cultural moment, life moment in his life. And he says wisdom and power are his. They belong to God. He changes times, verse 21, and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. God does these amazing things. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. Daniel says in verse 23, I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we, what we ask of you, okay, Made known to me what we ask in prayer. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And to use a, a phrase of one of uh, uh, my favorite guys I follow on Twitter, we ride at dawn. Load them up, boys. We got the message. Incredible. Wow. God is coming through. You know, I don't know that I would have waited and done all the praising. As soon as I had the answer, I think I would have got dressed and went straight to the king to tell him exactly what it was that God had to say to him. But here's one of the things that we, we dare not miss as Daniel leads through this crisis. I talked to you just a few moments ago about how the main figures in the story are characterized as opposites. You know, you've got this cartooning effect. 
you look at Nebuchadnezzar when we lay out those 23 verses. Here's a guy that's violent. He's ready to do these grotesque things to people um, on a whim. Nebuchadnezzar is anxious in the story. He's surrounded by incompetent people who, do, who don't know what they're doing, right? He threatens and he intimidates. He bribes and he coerces. He tosses and turns. He has all this power, but he has no authority over his own sleep. He dabbles in the occult for guidance. And then we have, halfway through this narrative, we have this little 17, 18-year-old young man who steps in and says, let me show you how to lead through a crisis. He's the opposite cartoon of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is meant to stand out against Nebuchadnezzar as as we see this in chapter 2. The irony is intended in the passage. So the king, he, he appears to have the world by the tail. The king is the one who's troubled. He's plagued by restless nights. He makes these unrealistic demands and rash decisions. And all the while, it's the conquered slave, about 12 years younger than he is, who comes across as one who is poised. He's prayerful. He's fully capable of speaking truth in power and speaking that truth to power. He's wise. God's spirit lives in him. He's courageous. He's composed. He's peaceful. He's shrewd with Arioch. He's bold with Nebuchadnezzar. He's urgent in prayer. He offers lofty praise. And he has these great friends who are always with him in this book, seeking God's plan. In the words of Golden Gay, the commentator, I want to ask the question this morning, which cartoon portrait is your reality? Can you sleep? Do you have this sense of composure under pressure? Is there a sense of the power and the wisdom of God flowing through your life? Are you more like the Daniel portrait or is life, has life kind of evolved and devolved into this Nebuchadnezzar portrait where there's restlessness, there's trouble, there's intimidation, there's tossing, there's turning, surrounded by incompetence, violent, anxious, frustrated, rash decisions, unrealistic demands. This is when we choose to do life on our own, life without God in it. Life according to a worldview that doesn't position us um, to navigate the stresses and the difficulties that come at us. You know, um, when I look at this, I think it's just powerful how we discern God's plan in the crises. And I don't know how you face and you lead through crises, but you're going to have a crisis in your life. And it's not this kind of level of crises, it's going to be other crises in your life. You're going to face moments like this where the stakes are high and everything's on the line. And when we look at this and I'm like, God, how do we hear your voice today? How do we hear your voice? And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, one of the things I see in Daniel's leadership as he leads through a crisis is that he, he has this sense of humility about him. I like how he, in verse 16, if you pull verse 16 up, Daniel, um, he gives himself space. And it says, at this, Daniel went to the king and he asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. And so when we're in a crisis and, and we understand culture is going in a different direction and maybe there's pressures of life, there's a knee-jerk reaction many times. We want to make quick and rash decisions. Daniel says, I can't do that. If I'm going to lead through crises... I've got to have this space for God to speak to me. I've got to have this God pause for God to be able to interject into my heart and my thoughts and my mind and my life what he might want to do. And so when Daniel, it's not that he's he's separating for exclusionary purposes. He's separating as an act of humility. God, I want to hear your voice. I want to eliminate distractions in my life so you can speak to me. And so when you lead through crises, it's an act of humility when you separate, when you give God an opportunity to to be able to speak and to to guide. That's what Daniel does in the crises. 
you know what he does in verse 17. It's not just separation in verse 16, but it's connection in verse 17. It's like an act of, it's an act of urgency. He, he shared his situation with his, with his trusted friends. Guys, this is the situation. This is what we have to do. We have got to get to the prayer room. We've got to get God's guidance on this because the stakes are high. Our lives are at stake. So he teams it up. And so in, in leading through a crisis, it's, it's important to have this sense of urgency, this sense of we've got to do this as a team. We can't make it alone. You can't make it alone. You can't navigate the complexities of culture and what it's throwing at you today by yourself. You need this this separation. So I said, let the Lord speak. You need this sense of connection, this sense of urgency. And something else, verse 18, we see it. There's this sense of intercession and transparency. Hey, I don't have all the answer, but God is my guiding light and everything anchors to him. And he knew that if he went down in Babylon, he's one of the few representatives of a biblical worldview in Babylon. And if he goes down, this whole thing tanks. He understood what was at stake. He goes to prayer. And finally, we see just this sense of uh, he leads through just acts of humility. He leads through the sense of urgency. He leads through the sense of transparency. I don't have all the answers, but God does. He leads for the sense of expectation. He attributes all power to God. God is powerful. He is based. He is grounded. He will fight for us. He will guide us. He will give us wisdom. And at the end of the day, he will give us sources of strength that come from unexpected places. So I ask you one more time. Are you prepared to lead through the crises? Are you more like Nebuchadnezzar or are you more like Daniel? And how you approach what's in front of you, the decisions in front of you, the sense of discernment that's needed for the issues at hand. You know, people like Daniel, they lead with humility, they lead with urgency, they lead with transparency. They're so based. They give us a compass even though they don't have the map. They give us the compass for every crisis that culture or life creates. And I think what we have in Daniel, this 17, 18-year-old young man who's been made a eunuch, who's been ripped out of his family, who's been put in a cross-cultural situation, who has been indoctrinated with a, an occultic Babylonian worldview by the blue bloods that tell him, this is the way you need to see life now. You have a Daniel who's in this situation, and he's showing to all of us that, hey, I don't know what map you've got in front of you to navigate, but here is the compass. This is how we make it. This is how we make good decisions when the pressure's on. We come at this with a sense of of humility, with a sense of urgency, with a sense of transparency, with a sense of God you can show up, you can intervene, you can do something that no one else can do. So here Daniel is, in this place, offering to all of us a compass to navigate what's ahead. You know, um, when I was driving to Kansas City this most recent time, actually a couple trips I always save my podcast up for my trips to, you know, when I'm going a lot, a lot of hours on the road. And so one of the podcasts I listened to was by Jack Marino. And I thought of her story, slide 42. I thought of her story um, as I thought about the occultic influence that was operating in Daniel's world and in the Babylonian culture and environment and where are the demonics at work in so many ways. And, and I don't think you, got, you can look around today and not, and not at least um, be open to the proposal that the demonic is at work in our world, breaking down our sense of identity, our sense of truth, that we are in fact a post-truth culture. And we're seeing this play out and lived out in so many different fronts and angles. It starts with the family, and it, and it gets us to a lot of other issues. And, um, and so... I was listening to this gal's podcast and how that she said, you know, I was sexually abused at two years of age 
and she remembered it as a five-year-old. And then she said later on, while this is not everybody's experience that goes through that, she said later on she became a willing participant in the abuse. And she said, I kept things in secret, and I acted out, and uh, my mom ended up leaving my dad because my dad couldn't stop using alcohol, and her dad struggled with drug and alcohol abuse, and she said he was always in this cycle. Uh, it was abuse, it was to rehab, it was out again, it was getting sober, it was on the verge of relapse, it was addicted once more, and it was, this was just his life cycle. She said that my dad convinced me that he was, she was his reason for living, and so it put this enormous pressure on me. And I love my dad, she said. He was a professional drummer at one time um, before he lost everything to crippling addiction. He would, he would go to church and play the drums at church. And he said, she said, I never, I never felt so connected to my dad as when I went to church and I watched him worship God through music. It was like it, it, his true self would co could come to the surface. There was this supernatural peace. And she said, I witnessed that growing up. But she said, by the time I reached high school, I developed a drug and alcohol addictions of my own. She said, I valued fitting in over playing it safe. And I let my need for acceptance navigate my life. And so she goes, she's like run, young and free, and she, she turns to all these other paths. And eventually, she says, my life turned into a haunting bondage. I was addicted. I did self-harm stuff. I hated myself. I was in abusive relationships. I gave away more of myself than I ever intended to, and I lost myself somewhere along the way. I had toxic relationships. And she said, I became heavily immersed in the New Age movement. I traded my childlike faith for psychedelic drugs, desert festivals, crystals, transcendental experiences, the whole Babylonian gamut. This is what she turned to in, to escape her pain. She said, I found myself broken up from my boyfriend, alone in Hollywood, brokenhearted. I had forgotten what it was like to feel, even feel sober, and it was like I was living a nightmare. I was too afraid. I couldn't wake up from this thing even to try something new. She was a Nebuchadnezzar in real life. She said, I was too prideful to seek help. I decided to go deeper into the darkness, and I, I studied ancient mysticism and the occult, and I, I followed the magical occult orders. I practiced sorcery. I got into aliens and UFOs and spirit entities. The universe, she says, is a force that we can manipulate with our minds, and so she set about trying to manipulate her life circumstances and she said, things got darker, and I turned to anorexia and self-cutting, and drinking gave me friends, and so I did that, and I just kept losing parts of me. She says, during the time I went through this demonic experiences that was too great for words, I started seeing dark figures in my mind, in my life. Sometimes I would look at myself in the mirror, and she said, I had no idea who it was I was looking at. I didn't even recognize it, who it was. She said, I just threw myself into the occult stuff, all the things I mentioned here this morning, on the uptick, especially the millennial generation. I threw myself into that, she says. I got into the occult orders. I had power and knowledge, or supposedly had power and knowledge, I was becoming increasingly, ironically enough, depraved and addicted and in bondage. And I, I joined this occult order. I've got the black robe on. I'm isolated in a meditation room with images of Isis and other goddesses around me. I invoked the entities and the deities. I practiced magic. I, I, I invited them to take over my body. And she says, still, I felt empty. And I want out of this thing. But you're doing so well. 
um, Jack. You're doing so well in the order. You're moving up. You're catching on quickly. You're really tapped into the transcendental stuff, the occultic stuff. But she said, well, if I can control the universe with my mind, how come I just can't even quit smoking? Everybody in the order was just addicted as she was. And she said, I began to crave God, the God of Daniel, who reveals deep, verse 22, reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, he, and light dwells with him. She said, I thought my life was too far gone to be saved. I met a Native American boyfriend, this convoluted reality even more. Spiritism and the like, I broke up with him, met a nice drug dealer, right? He was in the New Age and psychedelic drugs, and that dark shadow just came over my life even more. And the demonic became more at home in my life. Sacred geometry, Egyptian mythology, ancient mystery schools, stars, magic, astrology, signs, everything in the universe was talking to me, directing me ultimately controlling my thoughts and she said I had so much shame and guilt I was so confused my life was tanking but everybody around me told me to that was neat and that was my thing and that was my truth just embrace your truth embrace your sin and somehow she knew it wasn't the answer one night she's walking across her apartment floor and she sees the dark shadows, the crushing darkness. It brought her to her knees. And she said, just out of the blue, and all the occult stuff going through her head, she said, Jesus Christ, save me. Four words. She said, I felt peace. And that night, I started reading my, my Bible cover to cover, word for word, for the first time in my life. And she says, I couldn't believe how many times the Bible warns against sorcery. The Bible warns of the dangers of divination, sorcery, witchcraft. It talks about it in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Acts, Galatians, Revelations. We don't have time to read all those. But it's all laced through the Bible. She said, at first, I read the Bible to judge it. I wanted to judge this book, this biblical worldview. I wanted to judge it and show the, iner the fallacy of it and, the, and the, iner the inerrancy of it. But she says something happened. It started judging me. And I started seeing it as truth. And by the time I finished reading it, I realized I had completely changed from the inside out. And for the first time in my life, I knew what it was like to be sober. I knew I could feel and be redeemed from the black pit I was in. She said, the Bible fed me. Unlike the occult manuals, the Bible fed me. It filled me. I started going to church. I gave my life to Christ. I stepped away from the occultic order. I was baptized. I've, I've been sober now. I finished my music degree. I'm serving in a church. And according to her social media post, um, she serves as a social media director at Redeemer Bible Church. And according to one of her posts, she just recently got engaged. She said, my dad recently gave his life to Christ and was baptized. And he told me that for the first time in his 70 years of life, he truly feels content on the inside. He's been sober the longest he's ever been sober in my life. And she gives this 45-second testimonial that I want you to hear straight from her. Out of the occult, into the light and power of the beauty of God. Listen to her words. 45 seconds. The Lord has changed my life. And... Even if he'd done none of those things in terms of like physical gifts or these bl these blessings that he's done on top of, even if my life had gotten significantly worse, the real gift that I received is Jesus Christ. He and he's the best gift I could ever receive. The true victory in this whole story is what God did. He saved me. 
He saved me when I was dead in my sin. And he can save you. And so again, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is the truth. You won't find it anywhere else. You need a savior. You will never be able to save yourself. And there is no other savior but Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jack. It's a great truth. There's a place in the New Testament that says Jesus is a light in the darkness. And he is. And if we're going to lead through stress and chaos and crises, we have to bring, we have to line our life with the values of a Daniel. Transparent, authentic, open, humble. So much better way to approach life. You can't do this life alone. No one can. Jack found Jesus. Her story is maybe different than your story. But you need him today. You need him. Why don't you invite him in? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this time together this morning. And we thank you for your truth. And we understand that we are living in a very dark and um, shadowy time. And I just ask and pray here this morning that um, you would touch each of us and our hearts would call out on you. And we would um, just open ourselves up for you to fill us with your great grace, your power, your insight, your discernment and wisdom. We need it so much. And I guess if we're all honest here this morning, um, there's been times when our life has has aligned with that cartoon portrait of Nebuchadnezzar. Brash, unreasonable, given to extremes, anger outbursts. This was our life. But your, because of your great grace, your great transforming power, you've given us a new identity, you've given us a new reason to live, You've given us the grace and tact and wisdom of a Daniel that even when the pressure's on, does the beauty of who you are steps into our life and shines through. And so, Father, we ask and pray here this morning that you'd be with us. And even though we come at this sometimes not altogether sure of the map that's in front of us, we're thankful for the compass that shows us what to value, that shows us what to keep as a priority. We're thankful for the compass, even though everybody here has a different map of what their life's going to consist of. We all have the compass. And that compass, it beacons out to us this morning. And the compass is Christ. And we ask and pray that um, we would prioritize him and we'd open our hearts and our lives up to him here this morning as we want to lift him up and we want him to shine through our life. Thank you for your great grace. And should there be one here this morning who has found those dark shadowy figures, should there be one online who has found, uh, who has turned to other um, devices and options to process the loss of losing someone they love or the, 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 the trauma of dealing with pandemics or um, the um, heartache of long-standing um, child abuse and other abusive situations. Father, those who have walked these dark, shadowy valleys, I pray this morning that you would reach out your hand. They would just um, feel your love and your grace extending to them this opportunity as Jack has said, Jesus saved me. He saved me. And he can save each of us here today. And so we, we ask that you would do that. You would work in our hearts. You would work in our lives. And we would be, um, once again, um, renewed and strengthened to face what's in front of us for this upcoming week. That we would be able to shine bright in a culture that's lost its way. That we would shine bright and be a uh, issue a clarion call for your truth and your beauty and we just speak this over this congregation at this time we just speak 
the, the Daniel portrait over this church, that you would fill our people with wisdom and discernment as they battle these crises in their life, that you'll help them to lead with transparency, that we'll not have a know-it-all attitude, that we will be transparent, we'll be humble people, that we propose ideas, and Father, that you would give us the strength and boldness to be ruthless with ideas, but compassionate with people that we will stand firm on your truth. We will counter the worldview of the age. But we will embrace and love those who have been caught up in it and that those who need deliverance from it. For we know it is the power and the presence of Jesus in and through us that gives us the opportunity to have the kind of input you want us to have. And so we just trust you to do your work, Father, and and, and as we progress here in the series, we're going to look at what this dream actually was in upcoming Sundays and what you have to say to us via world history and how life is going to go. But I pray here this morning at the onset that not only would we um, live our life and stamp our child, not only would we draw our line and take our stand, not only would we love our people, but we will lead in crises and faith face our crises in a way that allows us to be your light in this in this cultural moment we ask all these things in your name amen well thank you you've been great this morning would you stand with me if you want to read ahead it's daniel chapter 2 and the rest of the verses in daniel chapter 2 we'll look at next week god bless have a great week